Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is an IT consultant by day, but a true crime horror and reality TV lover by night, plus a podcaster with some irons in the fire. Laura Haas is here. How's it going? Hi, George. Thanks for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. So, as I just said, you're a big horror fan. Um, yes. <laughs> and part of what makes this show so interesting to me is hearing about how people got into horror. So how, how, how did it start for you? For me, I think when I was younger, there were like certain things that I was terrified of, like roller coasters, like horror movies. And it was not that I had ever experienced them, but just the like not knowing that scared me. Right. And then the first horror movie I remember watching was the original Halloween. And it was like in the fall, my friend and I were watching it in her basement and she is like a total scaredy cat. So she was <laughs> terrified. And I was like laughing at her being so scared. Right. Because I was like, well, yeah, you can kind of see what's going to happen. Right. Right. That can kind of go either way, though, because sometimes when you're with someone who's really scared, it can make you really scared as well. Yeah. Uh, or it can go the way it went with you where you're like, oh, like. I'm not this scared. Like this is not, it's not this big a deal and uh, make you feel a lot better. So even, even that reaction can go so many different ways and people react so differently to, to horror. Yeah. And so I was probably in high school or like maybe, maybe in like eighth grade. So Mm -hmm. then like by the time I got to high school, I started watching it more and more, usually with like groups of friends. Right. And then I like fell down the path where I would just watch horror movies by myself and um, (laughs) I like appreciating them for what they are and not like truly terrified. Um, Although there's certain ones that will get to me for sure. (laughs) Right. (laughs) When we first were chatting about doing the show, you tossed out a couple of ideas for movies and they were kind Mm -hmm. of all over the spectrum of horror. So I'm curious if there is sort of a subgenre that you gravitate to more than others. That's a hard one because I don't, I feel like I don't gravitate one more than the other. I think there's like certain movies, like I'll look at slasher films and I'm like, no, I don't like those. But then there'll be a couple in that category that I really like. And so then I'm like, well, I don't know. It's hard to say. I do find things that feel more like they could be based in reality. So like the, the paranormal stuff is enjoyable, but definitely like the ones based more in reality, like freak me out more and and feel more, feel more real. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. I'm the same way, you know, something like um, the strangers is much scarier Mm -hmm. to me than something that's ghost related because, you know, I don't believe in ghosts, but I sure as hell believe in somebody with a knife. (laughs) Right, 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 exactly. And, And I mean, like, there will be movies that I'll watch alone and then I'm like, all right, I got to take a shower and go to bed. And I like find myself like peering out of my shower <laughs> curtain. And, like somebody could come into my place right now, which is usually like that external, you know, force, not necessarily like a ghost or paranormal thing. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that you sort of mentioned that invasion of privacy, that feeling of someone sort of coming after you and, mm-hmm. and possibly watching you based on the movie that we're talking about today, which is 2004 Saw. Um, yes. This movie was directed by James Wan, who would go on to launch both Insidious and The Conjuring, while also dabbling outside of horror. And it was also written by Lee uh, Winnell, who also worked with Juan on Insidious and would go on to direct his own movies with Upgrade and the recent Invisible Man. Actually, I didn't know that he directed Insidious when I like suggested Saw. 
Mm. And so then when I was like looking up about the movie because we were doing this podcast, I was like, oh, my God, I love that movie. It's cool that he also did those, but they're totally different styles of movies. Yeah. And I haven't seen The Invisible Man yet, though I've heard really good things. So I'll have to check yeah. it out. <laughs> uh, it is interesting that, that they're able to kind of diversify themselves in that way. You know, a lot of directors sort of fall into a rhythm. And they mm-hmm. start putting out the same sort of thing over and over again. And so when a director is able to break out of that, it's always pretty impressive to me. Yeah, absolutely. And and just like, I mean, granted, those movies came out probably at least five, seven years apart. I don't know when Insidious came out. But, um, you know, things were different cinema- like cinematography-wise. But just overall like storyline plot type of movie it was like completely different so right one of the things that's really interesting to me about saw as well is that uh it's one of the most successful introductions of a horror icon in Mm -hmm. recent years the new version of it and pennywise uh took off a little bit as well but you know pennywise doesn't have eight movies (laughs) right well that was the thing like i i have to admit i haven't seen every single saw movie because at a certain point they turned into a genre in and of itself. <laughs> right. But like the amount of success that came out of like this single horror movie is like hard to find any other horror movie or other movie other maybe than the Fast and Furious that had that many sequels. Right. It's really impressive. And what's only what's also uh, impressive is that equally iconic to Jigsaw and Mm -hmm. Tobin Bell as John Kramer, which we are going full spoilers here. This movie is 16 (laughs) years old. But his his sort of iconography is as I I mean I'm using the word icon too much here but it's the stuff that he uses is as much a part of what makes saw saw right as the killer um you know right. the pig mask the other traps and the you know the reverse bear trap in particular and Billy mm-hmm. the puppet it's all part of this terrifying environment that Kramer brings people into yeah And the fact that there are so many individual pieces of the movie that stuck out to people, I think, is really indicative of why this movie struck a chord and why it's it's such a a vital piece of filmmaking for so many horror fans. Yeah. And I think the other thing, like as I was watching it, you know, the second or third time around, but for this podcast and like taking notes, there were elements, too, of it that were like call outs or like just kind of paying tribute to other horror movies or Mm. other like other. So. And I don't know if we're getting into it yet, but it's in the trailer where the um, photographer is taking pictures through the dark apartment and using the flash to kind of light it up. And it reminded me of the night vision goggle scene in like Silence of the Lambs where Mm -hmm. he, you know, like, and so like those simple little things of like playing in darkness, it's not an original idea, but like bringing that together in the movie that they like ultimately created. And if you are a horror fan, you kind of like notice those things as hey, that like reminds me of something else from another movie. Yeah, it, it feels very obvious that they are horror fans as yeah. well, which is always something that is nice to see when it, you know, when it doesn't feel like they're embarrassed to be making a horror movie. Yeah, and using a creepy doll like Jigsaw, like right. every, you know, every like 80s horror movie has like creepy kids or creepy dolls or, you know, it in and of itself kind of being that clown figure that people are afraid of. Um, so. Right. And, well, I mean, plus... Billy the Puppet, not only is are there various creepy dolls throughout horror, but it's also a specific reference to uh, the Giallo movie Deep Red by Dario Argento, which uh, James Wan is a huge fan of Dario Argento's work. The black gloves on the unseen killer that Tobin mm-hmm. Bell has is another uh, Dario Argento staple. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah, and so he, it, it's nice that he sort of includes these homages to the things that they love. So sort of being like, yeah, we're building on the shoulders of giants. You know, we, we, without them, we wouldn't be here. And they were hoping to and did truly establish a bedrock to build an entire genre off of, even if it did sort of become a little flanderized in that right. it it became just about the gore. But it's easy to see especially in this first one, like right. what was appealing to people about this movie? Yeah. And I think that just the general popularity that it had, like they, I mean, being a horror movie, it was a small budget. Uh, mm. I looked at it, it was like $1.2 million. And at the box right, really office, like. it was $103 million. So, you know, every so often there's a big horror movie released on Halloween or a Friday the 13th. And, you know, it gets the people who aren't hardcore to go to the theater. And so paying tribute to all of those other movies and directors non-horror lovers don't pick up on that but like get mm -hmm. to experience that and just like have an appreciation i think for horror movies which can so easily be written off as not great film <laughs> no I, I think you're absolutely right and it's interesting that you brought up the budget i definitely want to talk about that because this is one of the most profitable films of all time especially mm -hmm. within the the specific uh, genre of horror like you said it, it grossed 103 million it opened up in uh, 2,315 theaters and its opening weekend grossed $18.2 million. And like yeah, you said, it's it only its budget was only 1.2. So, you know, you got a James Wan, really smart, gambled on his own talent and he took no upfront salary. And so he, he took a percentage oh, on wow. the movie instead, uh, a smart move on, on yeah, its part. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's, it's particularly interesting that not only was this successful, it was successful going up against other horror. The Grudge came out the same time. And so yeah. it's not like people didn't have options, but this was something new. It had sort of elements of seven in terms of the yeah. like psychopath uh, I was getting major seven, seven vibes the whole time. <laughs> yeah, but what's, but what's really cool about it, and I think that it's a really great distinguisher, is that it's sort of telling the story of the psychopath, not from the pers uh, perspective of the police chasing him, but from the mm -hmm. perspective of the victims, where like mm -hmm. you see the police doing their thing, but really the people that you're with the whole time are the victims. And feeling that sort of isolation and that desperation that they're they're in the middle of is so intense and, and so interesting and, and definitely part of what makes this uh, a unique movie. And, you know, like I said, you're spending this time with these characters. The, the movies have gone on to get this reputation for just grotesque, gleeful right. violence, but that's pretty far removed from what the first movie is, where it's really more about this tension that they're going through. And there are interludes of shocking stuff. Sure. Um, but that tension is really what the movie's all about. And they created it for the actors by filming in chronological order. So they were actually going through mm -hmm. it and very fast because like we said, right. they had a super small budget. So you got to really pack it in. The film's pre-production was only five days. And so they shot, wow. yeah, and <laughs> they shot and cut at the same time over its 18 day shooting period. All of the bathroom scenes were shot in only six mm -hmm. days. Yeah. Well, that bathroom was gross looking. I can't imagine being there. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like, days. we're trying to get out of here as soon as possible. <laughs> that six days was longer than they wanted. But yeah, like the, the rehearsal takes are what you're seeing on the screen. <laughs> like You gotta, gotta yeah. move fast. Uh, I'm curious what you think about John Kramer as a villain in terms of like not being a very intimidating person based on his physicality, which is so often what draws people to a horror villain, you know? Um, when, El, when he was coming up with the idea... 
for uh, for mm-hmm. Kramer. He was spending time in a neurology ward for anxiety and headaches, and he sort of like reflected on his own mortality. And so this character and and having a brain tumor and having just a few years left to live and and you know nothing left to lose, that sort of desperation driving someone who is you know not the most imposing figure to sort of apply other methods i'm like what just i'm curious what you think about him as a villain spoilers like you said but like the fact that you don't really know who he is until like the end Mm -hmm. essentially so there's this kind of villain that nobody knows what who this person is and i think you know my love of true crime kind of comes in here of like like i like reading about different serial killers because more often than not they're not these you know obvious people there are these people who hide in plain sight and like can in their own sociopathic ways convince people that they're not evil or they're not they how could they possibly be responsible for something like this i think it plays to that character of this guy who it wouldn't be this guy and that's the thing that makes it even more scary is because the the obvious person isn't actually the person that they should be looking at and it's kind of that misdirection um just based off of of this I think, honestly, it's a really good villain. And I think, again, to the point of, like, I like the realness of of certain horror movies. Like, that feels more real knowing, like, what I know about these different predators, essentially. (laughs) As opposed to having, like, uh, Jason Voorhees lying on the ground there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I I mean, too, like, even even the the character, like, if you look at Anthony Hopkins from Silence of the Lambs, like, you see these old white dudes. You're like, oh, they're harmless. (laughs) No. Not harmless. (laughs) Definitely not. So before we get into the actual movie, I want to talk about the production credit. Mm -hmm. There are two logos that I feel perfectly capture their oeuvre. And the first one is the Neversoft logo, since swallowed Mm -hmm. up by Infinity Ward and Activision, gone but not forgotten. And and the Twisted Pictures logo with a metal spike separating the two words and they're just covered in barbed wire and it shows up for this movie and you're immediately like i understand the movie i'm going to see (laughs) like just from the production credit it's like it's grimy it's industrial and it's so reflective of the movie i think it's such a great production credit yeah like the the grunginess of it and then i mean like immediately you're thrown into a dark room yeah and like you're in it and i think like so many horror movies especially like the older you know campy type horror movies you've got this build up everything's great everything's happy and then everything goes wrong and that's not at all the scene they set no time to relax with this in it and you're sink or swim literally literally sink or swim (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so it starts off and adam stanheit who's played by Lee Winnell, who's the writer for the movie, mm-hmm. he wakes up submerged in this tub, which truly would probably be like the scariest thing in the world to just wake up and be drowning. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And so obviously he flails around while trying to get up and he finally gets some air, um, but he finds that his ankle is chained to a pipe. And mm-hmm. while he's kicking around, obviously he accidentally kicks away the plug uh, and the key that we uh, see gets th- like at the very, very beginning gets sucked down the drain. Yep. This doesn't really come back into play until the very end, but like when it all clicks together, you're just like, Oh no, the key. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because you're in that sheer panic. And I think, you know, as the outsider, it's so quick to judge it. Right. right? But like, and you're also not even sure what it is either. You're like, Oh, what? the first time, 
yeah, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, he pulled the plug out. Why did they pay attention to that? And then, you know, it comes back around. And then obviously watching it again, you're like, oh, man, wish I could tell you. (laughs) Uh, And so he freaks out very reasonably, in my opinion. And he's feeling his way around the room when he discovers uh, that across from him, similarly chained, uh, is oncologist Lawrence Gordon, played by Carrie Elwes. And they do such a good job, I think, of communicating the disorientation that they're that yes. they're feeling. And it's something I think is really important. It, the camera is right up in their face. It's swaying. They're shifting focus. And there's like some after images. This sort of like blurry movement and stuff is something that's really iconic to the Saw franchise. Yeah. And it sort of gets abused later in... Uh, in like later installments, but I, I really like it, especially in this movie. I think that they use it really well here. And although I assumed it had something to do with shot exposure time, there was very little information about the way that this was like actually put together. Mm. Uh, and so mm-hmm. what I did was I just reached out directly to the movie's editor. And did you yeah, really? and so <laughs> uh, I talked to uh, Kevin Gruter, uh and he was not only is he the director of my second favorite Saw movie, Saw 6, but he was also kind enough to provide me with confirmation. That's so nice. Yeah. So shout out to Kevin. He said most of the blurry stuff is done in camera and in editing. Often we'd stop and start the film cameras to get flash frames that were blurry and overexposed in random ways. And we'd toss those in to get interesting effects slotted into the other into the other stuff. So. That's how they accomplished this. There, I could not find this information anywhere on the internet. So hopefully if anyone was wondering, <laughs> now <laughs> they know. That's a <laughs> Yeah, so there you go. Thanks again, Kevin. And finally, when they uh, come to and their disorientation stops, they notice that in between them is a corpse holding a revolver and a micro cassette recorder. Yeah. First off, this dude's- You're in it. Yeah, you're in it. And this dude's face is absolutely mangled, which yeah. is interesting in a way that comes back into play. But also, uh, I really like the way that we're sort of like shown their resources here where each thing like thuds into frame. Like we get a very specific shot of each thing that they have at their disposal. Right. When we know what they have to to deal with, that's when we can start being like, okay, how, how are they going to get out of this? And so it's very important to sort of be like, here are your tools. What are you going to yeah. do with it? Well, I, love and I it. think that's the thing, right? Like as I was watching this and this will come back around at the end of like, why I think this is the best horror movie ever made is like, it feels very escape room esque, mm. obviously a lot more horrific of a scenario. <laughs> this is the um, original escape room. <laughs> right? So like it's literally inspired this whole business that yeah. these companies have that like let's lock you in a room for an hour and see if you can like figure out how to get out of here. And it's like so you know, you as the the audience member with this movie, you're immediately like feeling for these characters, you're as equally as disoriented because when the lights are out, you can't see anything. The lights come on. There's a dead guy. Like you don't know what's going on. And you yeah. immediately start looking around the room to be like, okay, how are they going to get out of this situation? Yeah. You're feeling it and, and experiencing it with the character with exactly the same amount of information that they are at the get go. And then obviously things happen that change that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a really super cool, intro, cool experience. Yeah. yeah. 
as the men discuss their predicament, we sort of get to know them a little bit. Mm-hmm. The dialogue is great here. I actually think that this is one of Wenel's strengths. Um, I really laughed when uh, he dismissively is like, what are you, a surgeon? And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept writing over and over again, like, Dr. Gordon, what a jerk. And, like, that he, and that he was, like, too calm with the whole thing, yeah. which makes his breakdown later, I guess, like, that much more impactful. But, yeah, mm-hmm. like, he's this intelligent educated like pragmatic guy like it's cool we'll figure it out and then um adam's character is so much more relatable he's like you not see what's happening like this is effed up yeah yeah he's freaking out right and they're trying to figure out why they're here and not just killed like if mm-hmm. they, they mentioned like if if this was about killing us they could have just killed us so there's yes. they want something from us right. and gordon notices the new clock on the wall showing that mm-hmm. someone has curated this experience for them <laughs> <laughs> <How nice. laughs> yeah. and both men find a tape in their pockets that are marked play me although lawrence additionally has a small key and a single bullet So obviously he tries the key on the locks, no dice, but there's a really interesting hesitation, I think, where Adam tells Gordon to like throw him the key and Mm -hmm. Gordon, like he hesitates for a second. Like there's this selfish desire to like hoard the resources and to maintain, like, he's like, this is the only power that I have in this situation. And like, am I willing to give it up? Yeah, I love the psychology of this movie. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like literally everywhere, you know, like the actual killer, the the people experiencing this. But you think you would be just and right in this situation. And, you know, even the fact that he discloses that he was given a bullet as well. Yeah. Um, whereas we'll see in a couple minutes, Adam does something a little bit different. And so yeah. it you start to see these different personality traits of a person in Again, you insert yourself in that situation of like, well, what would I do to to survive in this? Like, all you can do is trust the other person. Yeah. That, yeah, that they're going to help you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's sort of the selfish nature of humanity is something that's right. explored a lot, not only in this movie through its entire storyline um, and Jigsaw's whole sort of modus operandi, but, you know, throughout the entire franchise, that remains a pretty serious theme throughout the whole thing. You know, in one of them, they're like, oh, there was a way for you all to get through all of the traps. You didn't actually yeah. have to kill someone for each of them, but it would have required you all to give a little bit. And this unwillingness to work together or a willingness to cooperate and hopefully get out together is something that I think is really interesting that they are exploring in this movie and throughout the entire franchise. Yeah, for sure. And so he does, in fact, throw him the key. Doesn't work for Adam, but it, like we said, it's interesting to see what it more represents. And Adam manages to retrieve the recorder from the corpse using his shirt and uh, the plug from the tub. Mm-hmm. And he plays both tapes. Adam's tape urges him to escape, calling him a pathetic voyeur, uh, <laughs> while Lawrence's tape tells him to kill Adam by six o'clock, or his wife Allison and daughter Diana will be killed and he'll be left to die. Right. He uh, he also mentions that there are ways to win hidden all around and that the corpse in the middle of the room shot himself to rid himself of the poison in his, in his blood. Right. He was like, oh, uh, you know, when there's that when there's that much poison in your blood. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good impression. <laughs> thanks. thanks. Uh, sometimes it's better to take the easy way out and blow your fucking head off or whatever the hell he yeah. says. And, and uh, he also says that X marks the spot for the treasure. Right. And... 
When he listens a little closer at the end of the tape, Gordon finds another clue hidden at the end. Very softly, it says, follow your heart. Yeah, very, uh, very like Beatles-esque of like, play this <laughs> a song in reverse and like hear that Paul is dead. Like that, like, because he picked up on it and he's like, shush, 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 and then like turns it up. It almost reminds me, <laughs> sorry, tangent, but of like those TV shows where it's facial recognition or something mm-hmm. and it's like super blurry and then they zoom in and it's like clear as day. <laughs> enhance, like, enhance. You know, so, yeah, that's not how this works. Yeah, he, he like turns it up and it gets like more clear instead of yeah, just getting yeah. louder. It's funny, but it, it you're at the end, you're like, ooh, follow your heart. What the hell does yeah, that yeah. mean? And thanks to a heart smeared in poop on the tank, <laughs> Adam, <laughs> Adam finds a bag containing two hacksaws inside the toilet. And God, the look on his face when Gordon urges him to reach into the toilet is... <laughs> just hilarious like and when he reaches his hand back out and it's just like a thick line demarcating Uh, it's truly disgusting it's like halfway up his arm (laughs) it's really it's really disgusting and they try to use these saws that he found to cut through the chains but adam's saw breaks and he just like hurls it across the room in anger um adam (laughs) like like, i can't use this anymore (laughs) it's like you could have used it for something yeah right he's like there's no way that this will come in handy (laughs) but again there's sort of this relatability to adam and we sort of see the two the two ways that people could react to this situation where adam is sort of this fiery i'm so angry at this situation i'm lashing out versus dr gordon's much more like inward reserved i need to stay calm and logic my way out of this which is also like suspicious in a way like because i think kind of going back to the beginning that the first kind of dialogue that they have is well, how do I know, like, you don't know what's going on? Or how do I know you're not responsible for this? And they're like, I'm here just like you are. Mm. But it also, like, I think in this movie where it's so disorienting and you're trying to figure out, like, who would have put them in this situation, you kind of suspect everybody or you suspect some level of guilt in the situation. So Dr. Gordon was definitely a shady character for me because he just was so collected the Mm. whole time. As much as you're like, oh, I understand that he's trying to stay calm, like, you would expect something to sort of, like, bubble to the surface. And so it definitely when his daughter and wife are threatened like right. to just be like, OK, <laughs> and, and I think that that so this is jumping ahead a little bit, but that sort of when we see that we sort of believe tap and why mm-hmm. he would be like, it's this fucking guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. So, yeah, I definitely agree that he is sort of suspect in his reserved nature. Yeah. But yeah, so Adam hurls this saw across the room. He breaks the mirror, and Lawrence <laughs> realizes that the saws are meant to be used on their feet. Dun dun dun. <laughs> and we like also when you like the title of the movie, you're like, why is it called Saw? And then you open up the toilet. There's half saws. You're like, ah. <laughs> they said the thing. <laughs> and even worse, now they just dulled the saws trying to saw the chains. So it's going right. to be even worse now on their legs. But. It, I think it is a really cool moment when it dawns on him, when he realizes it and you realize it sort of at the same time. And he like is like, this can't be it, but it, it's really like the only thing left. I think it is a really cool moment. Yeah, it's a cool moment. And it's also a tool used by Jigsaw, right? It's kind of that red herring of mm-hmm. like, you could get out of this with the saw, Later, we find out that there was a key that would have gotten them out of the situation. But 
when somebody presents that information to you, you're like, this is the only way. Right, yeah, <laughs> definitely. They're like, if somebody was like, okay, I've locked you in here. Here's a saw. I'm going to try and use the damn saw for sure. Right. You're like, this is all I've got. <laughs> He realizes from this dawning of the idea that he has to saw his own foot off, he realizes that their captor is the jigsaw killer who Lawrence only knows about because he was once the suspect. Or that's why he has such an intimate knowledge of him. Yeah, it was that and the fact that piece of the mirror broke off and they realized it was a two-sided mirror. And somebody was watching them. There's a camera behind the mirror. They, they break it and they see he looks through it because he's like, I'm going to cut you if I get over there <laughs> with a shard of glass. But when he looks through it, he notices that it's only reflective on the one side. It's see-through. They look over and they see the red blinking light and they realize that they are being watched by someone. And so mm-hmm. it all comes together for them. And we flash back to a previous game of jigsaws yes. where somebody died of massive blood loss after being forced to crawl through a cage of razor wire. It's really gruesome. I imagine that this probably stuck out to you as someone who likes true crime stuff, but I really like the uh, interludes of forensic photos kind of documenting mm-hmm. it from other angles instead of just like relying on the camera movement. First of all, I think it's a really effective way to be like, check out this awesome makeup we did. <laughs> and like, they yeah. did, they deserve to be proud of it. It looks disgusting. <laughs> well, and the thing that's too, like, again, like probably with the later movies in the series where you really see the people going through the trauma, mm-hmm. this was more like, here's the aftermath. Yeah. And then there was like that fast cut scene where the guy's like seen crawling around, but you're not really seeing the damage being inflicted to him. So yeah. it's again, it's gruesome for sure, but it's not like, I, I don't know if you've seen the human centipede movies where it's like <laughs> very like you're watching this right. happen and it's like amazing movie makeup that they're doing, but it's very much that like aftermath and way that they cut it that to me, it's not like cringeworthy i have to look away right we see more and more of these previous games where you know people are put into ironic scenarios where the victims are forced to essentially kill themselves in a way that relates to a sin they've committed in the jigsaw killer's eyes and Mm -hmm. eventually after these murders are starting to stack up the cops find a pen light at the scene of one of these games and detective tap who's danny glover I was like, oh, shit, Danny Glover. <laughs> the biggest star that they got for that movie. <laughs> and uh, Steven Singh, uh, the other detective, played by Ken Lung, And they determine that this is Gordon's pen. And they interrupt him while he's in the middle of discussing his patient, John Kramer's terminal brain cancer. And so, and making Google AI as an intern or yes. resident or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's really fun when you come back to this moment and you see sort of where it all starts and Kramer has something in his hand and that's the pen that he's the pen light that he took from Mm -hmm. Dr. Gordon. And, you know, there's blueprints for, for like his traps and stuff that like Zepp is there. He's creepy. And he's like, Oh, he's a very special person. Dr. (laughs) Gordon. (laughs) I hate that guy. Cause he was also the worst and lost. I don't know if you ever watched that show, but he's he's definitely got a type. Yeah. He's got that unlikable face. (laughs) So the, the cops come to, to check him out, but Lawrence's alibi that he was out having an affair checks out, and he agrees to hear the testimony of Amanda Young, who is the only known survivor of one of the traps. She's a former heroin addict who believes that the killer helped her in the same way that the killer 
clearly feels that he's showing people the error right. of their ways. We get to see her game, and she's hooked up to this rever- reverse bear trap on her head, which, like I said, is one of the most iconic traps in the franchise. It's used. It's I will. I think it's it's deserved that it's such an iconic trap because it's simple it's intimidating they've got this big honking thing right on their face you know and you get to see what it can do on a dummy which is i think a very effective way to be like oh here's what like you get to see it without seeing it right away exactly that was the thing i was talking to my brother about this movie before and he's not a horror fan at all and he's like, I don't want to see somebody's face get ripped off with a reverse bear trap. I'm like, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you don't see that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so great. Sort of like no, seeing what it can do and having that threat hang over yeah. your head while she oh, goes yeah. through it. Um, it's really great. And while she's there doing her test, we see written on the back wall. They never draw attention to it. But just straight up on the back wall is the phrase, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life to me, you will find true life. This is big for spoilery reasons, you know, for the franchise down the road. But basically, her game is that she's supposed to cut the key out of the stomach of a corpse in the cell. Only as she's doing it, she finds out that he's not actually dead. You know, she stabs that fool a bunch of times. She really goes for it. Yeah, no. Uh, She rifles around. She gets the key out of what was actually pig guts. So... I'm sure it was absolutely disgusting to be rooting around in there. But then Billy the Puppet rolls out. This is truly iconic. If anything is more iconic than actual John Kramer as the villain, it might be Billy the Puppet. Um, People do like just straight up call him Jigsaw sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know his name was Billy the Puppet, to be completely transparent. <laughs> there, hey, there you go. This is what I'm saying, is that people learn it. Like, it's not... He's he's right. never like, this is my friend, Billy the Puppet. <laughs> like, <laughs> but um, it's it's been really interesting sort of seeing his evolution throughout the years. And last night, I watched the short film that they made to sort of pitch this movie to investors. Um, it's like a nine-minute short, and... In that nine-minute short, Billy the Puppet has a cute little bowler hat, and I think it's a mistake that they got rid of it. (laughs) That would make him a little too charming, I think. Well, it certainly would, especially because he, like, rolls on out on his little trike. Congratulations, you won the game. (laughs) Yeah, he's got his rosy cheeks. Yeah. (laughs) That's the thing with, like, dolls, especially in horror movies. It's like, oh, it could be an adorable, like, kid's toy, or it could be a terrifying thing that haunts her dreams forever. (laughs) Absolutely. But yeah, so basically she's just free to go and she feels grateful to the person that she claims helped her. Right. And uh, James Wan actually built Billy himself, which I think is fun. (laughs) With the budget that they had, of course. Right, yeah, true. But I'm sure that he's absolutely psyched about like, hey, I built this thing with my bare hands and it turned into this huge icon. Yeah. It's literally like his face is just clay paper mache and black ping pong balls with the irises painted in for the eyes Ah. and uh, paper towel rolls inside. So there you go. That's how to build a Billy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. (laughs) That's That's right. James Wan, he he did Aquaman as well. So I'm sure Ah. (laughs) there you go. It all connects. In current day, we're done with this flashback for a moment. We see Allison and Diana, Dr. Gordon's family, being held captive at home while their captor watches Adam and Lawrence through a hidden camera. So they've seen, they see the camera there and they're, they're like, oh shit, like, 
the, every angle has been pre-thought out. We can't break mm-hmm. this camera. We can't break the glass that it's behind. It's why they can't break the chains. You know, we, we see this flashback again, and we see Gordon interacting with his family in a way that is, it's not ideal. He's a jerk. Yeah. Dr. Jerk. Yeah. He's sort of like a distracted dad. He's like, oh, I'll come tuck you in when I'm done with this paragraph. Like, yeah. Also, you're a doctor. What are you writing? That was the thing that was weird to me. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, why are you writing something? Patient reports? I don't know. Something. This was before EMR, though. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and he's writing up like a love note to his intern that he's <laughs> yeah. cheating with. More realistic. Yeah. And, you know, we see him clearly caring for his daughter. I do think that he genuinely does love his daughter. But as he walks out, his marriage itself seems to be pretty loveless. Uh, his wife asks how he can continue to pretend that he's happy. And he's like, I am happy. Uh, And she's like, no, this is bullshit. I wish that you would get angry because at least there'd be some passion in it. Um, She's really, she's leaning into it. Yeah. Right after he leaves, the bad man, that quote unquote, the bad man, that scared Gordon's daughter in the first place, why he had to go tuck her in, uh, comes out. He did exist. He comes out, he ties up her and her mother. It's really sort of scary. And also representative of that sort of distracted nature of his relationship with his daughter to be like, she was like, there's a guy in the room. Check the room. And so classic horror movie, too. Like, yeah. people never believe the kids. Absolutely. Never believe the kids. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, when it's come up on the show that the parents, like, did believe the kids, I, it was, like, unique enough that I mentioned it. And I was like, holy yeah. shit, they actually believed that. <laughs> he didn't actually check the room. Like, literally, the guy is just in the closet. Like, it wouldn't yeah, have been that hard. hard. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so he, he jumps out. He did exist. He, he ties him up. And there's some really nice sound editing here too where he like listens to her heart rate while he's holding a gun to her head Mm -hmm. and it like we hear it ourselves and it like really it makes you very nervous for this little girl (laughs) like it's it's very effective and you at this point you see that it's actually the orderly right it's zap yes we we see him lumbering around the house and and getting this little thrill out of scaring the little girl and As far as we're concerned, we're like, okay, this is the guy. (laughs) He's the guy. Yeah. He's the weirdo. (laughs) You're like, oh, he works at the hospital. That's how he got the pen light. Exactly. Yeah. We're like, oh, it all comes together. You feel real smart. You're like, oh, I see how it all all Mm -hmm. clicks. But the house is simultaneously being watched by Tap, who's gone off the deep end <laughs> he is big time yeah he's like obsessed with the with the case he's got his house is just wallpapered in photos and newspaper print like literally the when Charlie you, Kelly Pepe Sylvia exactly thing. <laughs> he's got boxes full of Lawrence Gordon <laughs> and, and he's I've got boxes of Lawrence yeah he's, he's on the hunt he's watching the house he's obsessed with the case and we see some more flashbacks that show us how we got to this point there's some really cool transitions here between the scenes like with the actual Mm -hmm. editing like with the car rolling up sort of acts as the wipe these neat transitions are something else that the franchise is known for this persists throughout the whole thing soft four in particular is known for its sort of just like interesting transitions but it's seen even like the seeds of it here They, they do this a lot there are several neat transitions that i just think are really cool and it's something that's so typically ignored they're just like all right fade to black whatever just get us to the next thing and just even putting the effort in to be like oh okay like this will be interesting the car will come across and that will bring in the new scene it's just neat it's 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 cool and like shows that 
this movie to me, I, I think Saw and the franchise, they all, the first Saw and, and the rest of the franchise get lumped into this like gore movie. Mm-hmm. And the reality is like, at least the first one, they, they tried to actually create a very good movie mm-hmm. that was psychological thriller. There was gore, there was, and like just, actually like beautifully executed in terms of things like the transitions, the, the use of music, which is not used heavily throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, but when they do use it, it seems very purposeful or using the heartbeat or anything like that. It, it, it does create like a very well created movie in my opinion. Yeah. Just the whole environment that you're in is just tense the whole way through by using all these little tricks to make it an immersive experience. It's the whole yeah. thing. And we see that Tap found Jigsaw's base using the video from Amanda's game. And mm-hmm. it's it's in a warehouse on Stygian Street, which is fun to me because in addition to being the name of James Wan and Lee Whannell's first short film, Stygian, mm-hmm. uh, Stygian also means dealing with the river Styx, which is obviously the boundary ah. between the underworld and the world of the living in Greek mythology. So yeah. this warehouse and the street that it's on sort of representing this underworld where people go to die basically is uh, mm-hmm. i think it's just sort of some interesting symbology there um and i mean is it a little corny to name your street something like that where it's like maybe not the most realistic thing perhaps but also i don't give a shit i think that's great <laughs> it's something also like the normal watcher wouldn't pick up on yeah like i didn't pick i mean i didn't pick up on it but like for somebody who cares about horror and like different things you're like oh yeah that's a cool shout out like yeah. a little easter egg kind there of thing. you go and uh, and it, again sort of the thing that makes this movie bear rewatching, where you can come back and sort of see these things that you miss and that sort of attention to detail uh, I think is indicative of the care that went in mm-hmm. and Sing and Tap are so excited that they found this place that they go in with no warrant no backup and they navigate the warehouse we see an extremely cute diorama of the bathroom that Gordon and Adam <laughs> are in. this little diorama really cracks me up which they probably used like in pre-production right like they probably oh, yeah. used that they were like this is gonna out. be it but like I like to imagine Kramer there, like, working with modeling clay for children, being like, and this will be Dr. Gordon, and I'll tie him to the chain. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and he, like, turns to Billy the puppet, and he's and Billy's like, yes, it will be great. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a really tense scene besides this little diorama, and Jigsaw, he comes in, and they, they have found that there's a guy there about to be in a trap. Yeah, there's just a guy there with like a drill trap about to start. Right. And when they confront Jigsaw, he starts the trap up. And so they're they're worried about stopping that and saving this guy. And Jigsaw uses this to sort of make his escape. Which in and of itself is a trap, right? Like detectives choose choose the life of this guy or choose catching me. And he's also hooded at this point. So you can't see... You kind of assume it's the orderly, even though the voice is different. Right. And I mean, it would be easy enough for him to disguise his voice. He sees that they're there. So, and yeah, and he like slashes Tap's throat. Oh, reminding me of Taxi or Taxi Driver, where Mm -hmm. Robert De Niro had the gun that like he had come out like of that. Yeah, his 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 little sleeve gun. The way the knife that came out, (laughs) I was like, Taxi Driver. (laughs) It was also very like uh, Assassin's Creed. He was was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) uh, So it's, you know, it's it's just a fun, fun thing that. You're like, all right, Jigsaw. I don't know. He was like, yes, I finally get to use this nut farm. (laughs) I've been waiting for this moment. (laughs) And they do save the guy. But as 
Singh is pursuing Jigsaw, his head gets just absolutely exploded by four shotguns rigged up to some tripwire. And originally, instead of shotguns, this was supposed to be like an iron cocoon that folded mm. him up, but budgetary constraints got in the way. So they, <laughs> they're like, we'll humble on it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're like, uh, we can afford four shotguns. That's uh, <laughs> not building a whole fucking cocoon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so they slap those up. I actually, I do think that they're very satisfying still, you know, having his head sort oh, of yeah. blow up like this. And the iron cocoon did finally get used and saw the final chapter. So it did finally get its when day they in had the sun. more money to play <laughs> yes, with, right? Exactly. And so Tap is convinced that Lawrence is Jigsaw and that he never should have let him go and that Singh's death is on his head and that all of this, everything else is on Tap's shoulders. Uh, And so Tap has continued to stalk him and sort of this obsessive nature is reflective of Jigsaw's own obsession as well. Mm -hmm. You, You sort of see how this obsession with saving everyone, whether it's through the traps and changing their worldview or whether it's through hunting down this killer and sacrificing yourself in the process it's just not feasible it can't be done and you sort of see the way that it is self-destructive for both of these people and we cut back to present day and they decipher a clue back in the back that adam had found a photo of yeah lawrence's family tied up and on the back of it it was like sometimes you see better in the dark or something like that right he pulls it out of the wallet through his wallet over yeah and there's that hostage picture they decipher this clue and they find an x marking the spot for the treasure in glow in the dark paint and it has a box containing two cigarettes a lighter and a one-way cell phone and it also contains a secret note for the doctor with a clue that indicates to him that he should poison adam with the cigarettes and the blood from the corpse in the middle Again, this sort of toxic blood thing from the beginning comes up. And there's some irony here because we know later, we, you and I know that John Kramer is Jigsaw. Right. And that he's sort of prompted into this by his terminal cancer prognosis. At least in this point in the franchise, that's the only thing prompting him. Although that gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the franchise goes. But his disdain for people dismissing the suffering of others is really underscored by Adam in this moment saying, give me that sweet, sweet cancer while asking for the (laughs) cigarettes. Uh, Plus, I mean, there's sort of this idea of like, oh, he has the toxic blood. And another big spoiler alert, if you're really upset, I guess jump ahead 30 seconds or whatever. But if – we know that the corpse in the middle is Jigsaw. And so when he's talking about how he has toxin, toxic blood and whatever, and sometimes the only option is to just blow your head right. off, you know, it's obviously also talking about the cancer that John has. So, so there's just some interesting irony going on there. And while he's fiddling with the phone, this also sparks a memory for Gordon of his abduction mm-hmm. in the hospital parking garage by this pig masked figure, uh, the same mask that we saw in Jigsaw's warehouse in the previous flashback. The two of them, now he's remembering this and he's, he's like, oh, great. I have this plan of how we're going to fake the, fake Adam's death yeah. with this poison cigarette. Um, but right. this is, so yeah, they shock Adam to ch- test and make sure that he's actually dead and he's not. It foils their <laughs> brilliant plan. And like, and again, Dr. Gordon's like, come on, man. He's like, I just got electrocuted. <laughs> he's so mad. And he's like, what, like, what did you want me to do? And he's like, you think I was making it up to like fuck up your ruse? <laughs> like, again, I'm not a Dr. Gordon fan. Yeah. It, it's very funny. And 
Adam also in this moment remembers his kidnapping. The power was cut to his apartment while he was in his photo development room. And he walks out and it's this super creepy scene where he's using the flash from his camera to illuminate what is supposed to be an apartment, but looks more like a pile of shit. (laughs) It's like this apartment that he lives in is disgusting. (laughs) He's a bit of a loner. He finds and beats up Billy the puppet, who's laughing like in my head when I picture like a Halloween ornament. It's like the little things dangling that have this same exact laugh that Billy has, and uh, yeah, that some factory created and continues to create. That's right. That's right. And uh, (laughs) he he beats the crap out of Billy the puppet with this baseball bat, but. After he does that, he thinks he's like, what? Like, that was obviously not actually what I was hearing, but someone put this there and he gets attacked by the same pig mask figure. So the same person grabbed both of them. This mask is really like gross. It, it's like, I don't know why he was like, yeah, a pig with hair. Like, that's going to be my, my mask that I use to hide. Like, what, what a weird choice. Are pigs used in like satanic things? I mean, I maybe as like a sacrifice, but probably not more than like goats or cats and shit. Like, I don't know. I feel like John Kramer just has like a weird idea of fun. And he like, same thing with like the modeling clay where he was like, yeah, like I'm going (laughs) to sew some hair into this pig mask. (laughs) Like, he's just a weird guy. Yeah. I mean, could be cause like, he could have some brain issues with the tumor, like, pressing on different parts of his brain. Could so be, could you be. never know. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the bathroom, though, Gordon receives a phone call on this phone. That, so they figure out it was a one-way phone. And he gets a phone call from his daughter and his wife, who tell him not to trust Adam. That Adam is lying, <laughs> and he's known who Gordon was the whole time. Great Such reveal. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's so fun. And Adam admits that he's been following Lawrence and taking photos of him having this affair with one of his med students. Many of the photos are also in the bag that held the hacksaws. And he sort of uses this as proof. But we see that from one of his visits to this med student that this, uh, this is the reason that Lawrence is being tested as far as Jigsaw is concerned. And when Adam describes the man who hired him, we assume that it's going to be part of this game and that Adam was actually in on it the whole time. But Lawrence realizes from the description that it's actually Detective Tapp who was paying him to (laughs) follow him. And you're like, oh my God, it was Tapp all along. Which is great that this movie, like literally all the biggest twists of it happen in probably the last like 20 minutes. Yeah. That it's just like twist, twist, twist. You're like, (laughs) oh They really keep you guessing. Absolutely. And- Adam, in this pile of photos, finds a photo that he didn't take of a man staring out a window of Lawrence's house. And this is when Lawrence identifies him as Zepp Hindle, the orderly from the hospital. And the clock strikes six. This is it. The moment has arrived. And Lawrence still hasn't managed to kill Adam. So Zepp moves in. He goes to kill Allison and Diana. But Allison, good for her, manages to free herself. And I was like, fuck yeah, Allison, get that gun out of his hand. And Yeah, she fucking goes for it. (laughs) Yeah, she gets uh, the jump on him. She fights Zep for his gun. And the struggle and the gun going off in this fight attracts Tap's attention from his vantage point. So turns out that his stalking actually did have some benefit for them. (laughs) And he saves Allison and Diana. And he rushes in, he, he saves them, and he chases Zep to the sewer, where he's shot in the chest after fighting with Zep. And he collapses to the ground, and he dies there. And 
it like really shocked me <laughs> in this moment. Yeah. I remember seeing it for the first time and like really feeling like this character. So he actually does persist in like flashbacks in other, sure. uh, in other saw movies. But like, I was like, this is the guy, like this member of the police force and like seeing his obsession is going to be like what we're going to follow the whole time in sequels and stuff. And so when they killed him, it really, it took me by surprise. Or at least be the good guy that like, I feel like so many horror movies, right? Like have that, and um, we can talk about the ending, but like have that very, very like, and this is the end. Right. And like A the fact bow, that the yeah. good guy didn't, didn't win, right? Like yeah. he's dead. And now this guy is charging somewhere you're like wait what absolutely and like you said all these twists are happening but so many things are sort of happening at once that it really like you're you're so amped up in these last couple minutes where lawrence is only aware of like gunshots and screaming because the phone gets like kicked away and so he is shocked and he he loses reach of the cell phone so even when they're trying to call him back to be like hey honey we're okay okay. (laughs) he can't reach it and so he in desperation six o'clock has already come he thinks that they might be dead he still goes for it and so we see that at least there was some love for his family actually there uh he does take this saw and he saws off his foot and it is gruesome like they do a really good job with the editing of sort of they show enough where you're like oh shit i'm seeing him saw off his leg and then cutting away and just seeing like adam like retching (laughs) being like this is absolutely horrific it's really great i love the way they handle this it's so still not as gruesome as 127 hours or whatever that james franco exactly it's so funny how it's like it's sort of humble beginnings but this is it this is the moment that sort of began a subgenre. This, it, like, when people look back and they're like, "Well, where did this sort of like quote unquote torture porn subgenre yeah. come from?" It's like right. this is pretty much the moment. This moment of him <laughs> cutting off his foot, and it, it's sort of incredible the amount of influence that this specific scene really had. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's really cool. And and he saws off his foot, and he does grab the corpse's revolver, and he loads his bullet, and he shoots at him. Blah blah. Except it's only one blat because he only has one bullet. And Zepp enters the bathroom, too. And he's there to kill Lawrence, according to the rules. But Gordon, this is another twist. Because he was a doctor, he knew where to shoot Adam. And he shot him in the shoulder. So Adam right. actually survived. And so when Zepp comes in to kill Lawrence, Adam gets the drop on Zepp before just bashing his head in with the toilet tank lid. So gross, the, like, squelching noises and stuff that it makes. But, like, so much rage and hatred for the person that, like, put them through this. Very cathartic. Exactly, yeah. It's it's this real catharsis moment. It's straight up just a garbage bag full of fake blood is how they did this, like, noise and effect. (laughs) And so that's why when there's blood, like, splashing all over him and it's making that gross squelching noise, it's, like, straight up just a garbage bag with blood. (laughs) Um and so Lawrence, he is missing a foot, but he's he crawls out of the room. I'm not looking good either. No. He's white pale, at this point. Pale as a damn <laughs> ghost. <laughs> and he's like is like crusty on the mouth too. Like yeah, he's, already. It's real bad. It's it's not a good look. But he thinks he's gonna crawl all the way out of there and he's gonna get help. And Adam searches Zepp's body for a key because he thinks that this is sort of the ultimate figure here. And he finds another tape instead of a key. 
that reveals that Zepp was another victim following my god (laughs) blew my mind he was following the rules to obtain an antidote for a slow acting poison that he was given yeah and as the tape ends the corpse from the middle rises holy shit what a shot like great music oh yeah it's absolutely spectacular and he reveals himself he like pulls off some of the makeup he cleans his face off and he reveals himself as the man that dr gordon was treating john kramer the real jigsaw killer he tells adam that the key to his chain was in the bathtub we realize this is the chain that adam kicked down the drain when he first walked up and there's this really great moment where, like, in his rage, uh, Adam, like, tries to shoot him. So, and you yeah. just hear the clicking of the bat. Like, yeah, because the, oh. there's not, nothing. Oh, man, it's so good. And old Jiggy shocks him with the remote <laughs> as one final kick in the ribs there. And he, John shuts off the light, John Kramer, he shuts off the light and he yells, game over, before, <laughs> before sealing the door and leaving Adam to die screaming which persists into the end credits yeah super effective i love that outro i i think it's so so good i think the thing for me and like reflecting on this movie that i will like a horror movie up until the very end and then the end will just like ruin the rest of the movie for me because the way that they end it or the way they try it. and i thought like this movie stayed so true to the rest of the movie that it was a satisfying ending that Adam is in no better a position than he was in actually worse. Yeah. Like from the beginning of the movie now. And it just creates this true horror to the viewer of like, nothing's resolved. <laughs> People are dead. Like, the only good thing is that the doctor's wife and daughter survived. Like that's the only positive. This level of ambiguity where you're like, well, maybe he can crawl out and, <laughs> and maybe they can get help. But you know, deep down that they are <laughs> fucked. <laughs> well, and even if, if, if Doc, like the doctor made it, you know, like crawling through the sewer. Right. Which we find Jeff out he right does. walking right behind him. So like, yeah. you know, he's going to finish him off. Well, <laughs> so. well, spoiler alert for way down the road. Uh, we find out that Dr. Gordon actually is involved in Jigsaw's plans. Ooh. Yeah. He like cauterizes the wound and he, he wakes mm. up. It's, it's a whole big thing, but we're not talking about those later ones. We're. <laughs> As in the canon of this one, Dr. Gordon just crawls out and probably dead. And I also I want to talk about this reveal that the corpse is Jigsaw because that's sort of foreshadowed when they pull this corpse isn't a corpse thing in Amanda's trap. Yeah. And this truly sent me down a rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> I, he, so he like he lies about being a corpse or about a corpse being alive twice and i started to think about why would he lie to amanda if he's trying to change her worldview because like how can it be effective for her if she starts from a faulty premise and only finds Mm -hmm. out that she's actually killing someone in or after the act so i was like okay there's a level of it working as a visual metaphor where it's like everyone who doesn't appreciate life is just a walking corpse man but like i think it also actually reveals a lot to me about who john kramer really is because this is gonna sound like some tinfoil shit like i'm just ranting about nothing but i like really i started thinking about this and he like he so he claims that he's trying to wake people up this is explored throughout the entire franchise he says, uh, Lawrence himself is described by his wife as passionless. Amanda does drugs to escape from reality. 
Paul tries to kill himself and sacrifice, like he give up his life to escape from it. Right. But, but this is also really directly addressed when he says that Adam is angry but apathetic. Mm-hmm. And it's like this apathy, I think, is what Jigsaw resents. And rather than the sort of passive nihilism that is demonstrated by his victims in this sort of like, well, nothing matters, so I'm going to just do drugs or I'm going to sit in my own filth. He's more of an active nihilist where he like Mm -hmm. ascribes his own self-destructive nature and the selfishness to the world and then deems that unacceptable and sort of like furthers his own self-destruction, trying to tear, Mm -hmm. tear down this world state that reflects himself. And when Lawrence points out how carefully each trap is planned. He's like pointing out that Jigsaw doesn't leave room for his subjects to value their lives so much that they like find alternative ways to solve the trap. He doesn't allow for mistakes made by sheer virtue of being human that humanity is supposed to be what right. he's celebrating. And this obsessive attachment that's also reflected in Tap that uh, to this idea that people are selfish and destructive is what's leading him to this point. And so the individuals, I don't think, are really the test subject. Humanity mm-hmm. is over and over again. And so each, yeah. each time someone fails, it just keeps Jigsaw's feedback loop going where he lets them be human, accounts for it, and then lets that be the thing that dooms them. I genuinely think that he's so deranged that he is lying to himself about his own motivations because forcing someone to shoot two other people to save their own life is not teaching them to value life. Right. And like, he's willing to lie. It's a control thing. Right. It's like, he doesn't actually pull the trigger on anyone. Right. And he's, he manipulates these people in such a way where like, he lies to Amanda about the body in the same Mm -hmm. sentence that he says, no, I am not lying. And, and sort of this sheer psychopathy of being able to like do that and manipulate this situation. And, The idea that some of his victims are used purely as sacrifice, I think that Gordon's wife and child, who, as far as we're aware, have no difficulty valuing their lives, is is all... Well, and Adam just being a photographer and, like, trying to make money, like, he doesn't do anything. Yeah, he's like, oh, you're a voyeur. And it's like, well, he's got to make... He's doing his job. And (laughs) it's just... All of this, I think, is indicative of this underlying discord between his his motivation that he claims and the actual truth, especially when his methods don't work. Nobody actually changes. Amanda, who it supposedly worked on in this one, is tested again in three, and she fails. And she says, nobody is reborn. And so basically, his values that he claims to have are not possible in the world as it is. And he knows this deep down. So he's not actually trying to change people's minds. He's just trying to tear down sort of the world that he sees as unacceptable. And his inflexibility in these ideals is what caused him to try and get to this point, especially starting with the people within direct reach of John right. Kramer. These are the these are the reasons why it's actually these people, not because oh, he's cheating on his wife, not because oh, he's a photographer and and so there's this level of voyeurism. It's just John Kramer is angry and when he sees something that reflects his own flaws, egotistical, lacking in sympathy, brutal, sadistic, it makes these sort of challenges for the other people so much more interesting because it's really like he's challenging himself. 
and mm-hmm. humanity and like it, it also makes later in six the re- part of the reason why i think that part six is so interesting is because it deals with like the person in the game is a health insurance executive and mm-hmm. there's this level of deciding who lives and dies and that like again that reflective nature of what jigsaw does and what the victim is doing right it's much more tangible and direct i think in saw six where it is like genuinely making decisions about who gets to have their insurance oh, money sure. and stuff yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 i just think that it, all of this sort of lying to himself it just makes him so psychotic to me and it makes this sort of exploration of his obsession so much more powerful you know everything in this movie and and in the franchise itself is has this sort of taint of obsession about it not even just Mm -hmm. in the movies in like the video games of saw you play as detective tap's son in the second one who Mm. is who he has an obsessive grudge against his dad for losing his mind about this case like he like resents him for being a bad dad because of it as well as all the other people affected by that obsession and seeing sort of the way that it ripples out and have and like the negative self-destructive impact of this obsession and also how it sort of permeates out from your own life. Yeah. To me, it just makes him such an interesting killer compared to someone who's just like, uh, I'm going to slash you with this knife. Like it, it, there's so much yeah. more going on under the surface, right. I think for John Kramer, that it's just really great. I'm curious what you think about sort of the quote unquote ethics of Jigsaw and and his claim that he's doing this for people's own good. Sure. I mean, like realistically, he's a sociopath at least. Sure, sure. And again, like reading, you know, about Ted Bundy or these different people who are killers and serial killers, um, in their mind, they're maybe not Ted Bunny, but like in their mind, they're doing something that they see as right. And they can't. And I I think the thing that's particularly interesting about Jigsaw is that like, he can say his hands are clean in that he's not actually the one killing anybody. He's the one kidnapping people, but like it's all choices that they're making on their own. So in his own twisted mind, he's being like, well, I gave them options. This is what they chose. Right. Which it feels very godlike. It feels very like Charles Manson-y, like cults kind of mentality right. of I'm at a higher plane than you. I get this more than you. When the reality of the situation is like, no, you're a severely mentally ill person. Yeah, absolutely. Who, whose obsession and like perfectionism like makes it very difficult for people to track or arrest you. And like, that's the thing Like, as much as people look at this movie and they're like, it's a gory movie. Yes, that's an element of it. But in so many other ways, like, it is a psychological movie. You're looking at it in every different angle from all these different people, all these different perspectives of the victim of who you think is the killer for a while. And then you realize he's also a victim in this whole scenario. Right. And then really in this film you don't get too much behind the mind of jigsaw i'm sure later in the series you do (laughs) but yeah it's it's just like that god complex of i'm just i'm right and you're failing this because you're the problem not me definitely has this sort of holier than thou element to it for (laughs) sure um so yeah so i mean i'm sure that this interesting nature of him being this way will play into it but why don't we uh 
get to the part now where we summarize why this is the best horror movie ever yeah. made. So I'll let you start us off. So, I mean, I, I think I kind of spoiled it in the beginning, but I, I, like a couple of things, obviously the fact that this franchise turned from one movie into seven or eight. And apparently there's talks that um, there's going to be new movies coming out this fall, uh, kind of related to it. Like, well, that got pushed back. Some... It's now like a year away. Oh, well, thanks, COVID. Um, <laughs> Damn you! So, I mean, like, the fact, the, the longevity of it, right? Like, yeah. things don't, like, I, I watched one of the Fast and Furious movies, and I was like, I do not get this movie. And, like, some of my friends are like, oh, you, you, you just have to, like, know what kind of movie it is and appreciate yeah. it for that. But the longevity of it, the fact that, like, we literally have rooms that people pay to play escape rooms i remember computer games too like escape room computer games that i played probably in like middle school or high school that like there's this fear that every person has i think of like being trapped and not being in charge of your own decisions and this movie just like plays so much on that while also taking you through this twisty turny kind of mystery of like who's actually responsible what's actually going to happen in a way that's not jump scare it's gory but again like this movie to me like rewatching it i'm like it's not as gory as you know some other other movies that i've watched yeah not even not even just movies further down the saw franchise but like all over the place there i mean even certain effects like in um midsummer like when the guy's head yeah. gets like smashed Brutal. in that's way way gorier than anything that's in this movie <laughs> Yeah. So for me, that's why it's it's a movie that you could go back to if, like you never watched before and it still holds up. It's it's not dated. It had a serious franchise after it. And just the fact that like it, it actually has a big cultural impact to things that we do. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't disagree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because when you really boil it down, like you said, you get this great mystery and you get this element of what would I do? It's Mm -hmm. so easy to put yourself in the shoes of these victims and be like, if I had to saw my foot off, would I (laughs) do do it? (laughs) If I had to navigate this razor wire, would I do it? If I had to stab this person who is laying here paralyzed in order to save my own life, would I do it? It's so simple, but it's such a great way to hook the audience member into the movie and it does all of this pretty much just from a dirty bathroom set. It's simple. It's cool. It has this great aesthetic that really kicked off its own thing. This sort of industrial, filthy like aesthetic was all over all of the imitators that followed right. this movie. Like you said, it has a huge, huge cultural impact. It has some fun writing. It has a great premise. The performances are fun. And there are some actors who you're like, oh shit, Tobin Bell. Oh shit, Danny Glover. Like, Carrie Elwes is in it. It's these people who you're having fun watching it go through this situation because you know it's fake. But like, there is, like you said, that element of it being close enough to what could happen. Yeah. There's so many people where it's like, this could just be an actual serial killer that I haven't heard of yet. Like this could be happening in a small town somewhere in the Midwest. Like there's that layer of, because it's so based in reality, it's so much scarier on just a core level than, than something that you're not positive about because it deals with just a person and his deranged mind and his misguided ethics. It becomes so much more grounded and all that on such a small budget. There's just so much 
passion, (laughs) so much passion that pulled this thing across the finish line. And to me, that's what makes this the best horror movie ever made. Laura, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was an absolute blast. I know that you said that you're still sort of putting your stuff together and that you don't really have any plugs, but I at least want to offer you a chance to shout something out that you're enjoying if you don't have, uh, and plus sure. if you, I mean, uh, if you have any socials or anything, you can feel free to shout those out too. No, that's, that's quite all right. I'm not an Instagram influencer or a TikToker yet. <laughs> anything that I'm enjoying. So I, I do really like reality TV, which is kind of interesting, like liking horror and then liking something as stupid. As Especially real. this one where he's like, when they see themselves on the camera and he's like, Oh, it's a reality TV show. <laughs> I've been going back to some older reality TV shows. I started, started watching Flavor of Love with Flavor Flav, which is there on Hulu. Go. And so it's kind of inspiring. My one friend and I are thinking of starting like a reality TV show podcast. So we'll see if anything comes of it. There you go. Highly recommend going back and watching those classic reality shows. <laughs> Keep an eye out for Laura's future reality TV show podcast. I'm sure it will be great. And as far as my plugs, you can check out the new website, Little Horror PHL. Although by the time that this comes out, it won't really be new anymore. <laughs> check out the website anyway. You can listen to the show right on there if for some reason you don't feel like listening to it on a podcast app but also it has links to all the social places uh you can find the store on there as well if you feel like buying some fun merch but you can also find me on twitter at little horror phl uh, that username extends to all the other social platforms but really we're mostly on twitter so reach out to us on there and i personally am on twitter at Gerg Hef, if you feel like listening to me talk about things that are not exclusively horror <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, So there's those places. That's pretty much it. Laura, thank you again. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Oh, wait. Also, leave a rating and a review. Okay, bye. (laughs)